Okay, good evening. So this is the last session we shall have until after Pesach. It's the conclusion of our fifth out of six waves for this shiur. And if you're really counting, this is number 33 since the very beginning. Shiur number 33 since we began Yoshua last October. And that'll make a, that'll bring us to 36 total shiurim. And then our closing, you know, wrap it all up thing on May 24. I emailed, huh? So it's, it, it, it piles up quick. And if you really, and if you really think about it, this is the fun part. If you if you actually came to every single one and you finished through the end of the series, all it was was a day and a half of your life, thirty six hours, <laughs> right? That's how I like to think about these things. Actually, it's absolutely incredible how much you can do in in a day and a half if you just you know pace it right. So, that, that, but that's really that's really all that it is. So this all being said, up to Kohelet. Traditionally, it is composed by King Solomon, although rabbinic tradition already understands that there are later developments, layers, etc., that's not going to impact whatsoever on, on what we do tonight. But the persona of the book is definitely King Solomon, while simultaneously, the word Solomon never appears. You know, the words of Kohelet, the son of David, king of Israel. So we all know who that is. But it's deliberate that there is a persona rather than a story about the king. And what I always have to tell my students, and I'll bat right off with this, is that the rule of when you learn Kohelet is that you're not even allowed to think about King Solomon. Because if you start psychoanalyzing, well, this relates to his reign, you miss the book. The book is written by the wisdom of King Solomon, but it's universal. It doesn't have to do with his part, part, particular strengths or his personal problems that he had at various points. It has zero to do with any of that. You and I could have written this book. It would have been less well-written, perhaps, and it wouldn't have been as wise. But fundamentally, he's describing human reality. And so to get in the way with his biography compromises your ability to understand this book. It happens, and that's, I, always, I always like it when rabbinic tradition swings into action, in case you haven't picked that one up. They really swung into action for this book, more than usual. In fact, the rabbinic sages were terrified of this book and strongly considered uh, censoring it, just cutting it out. They feared that it might actually cause more harm to more people than good. And since the purpose of learning Torah and the whole Bible is to become closer to God and more religious rather than threatened or compromised or driven away, there was talk about whether it was a historical talk about it or just rabbinic statements that talk about it, that there was discussion of should we keep this book in the Bible? Okay, so that always is intriguing. So we can look at source number one. It's in the Talmud itself. The sages wished to hide the book of Kohelet because its words are self-contradictory. They felt that, look, if it's divinely inspired, it, you know, make up your mind, right? God should be able to handle this in, through some kind of inspiration. The fact that there are so many contradictions within the book, which indeed there are, is telling. And so how could God inspire contradictory statements? And therefore, let's get rid of it. It's important to know the Hebrew, by the way, where it says the sages wish to hide the book. The Hebrew word is lignos, which is the same word as geniza. Geniza is the noun. What stuff do you put in geniza? Huh? Worn out things, but worn out anything? Your old baseball mitt? Sacred things. That, that's the point. That they understood this book is sacred. That, that was never up for question. They understood it was an inspired book. Their fear was, yes, because it's an inspired book, that's what makes it so dangerous. Because people will get hold of it, and once it's available, well, anybody can read it. And if anybody can read it and people see contradictions, they'll say, well, what is this? Is this divinely inspired? Is it not? What should I do? What should I think? And so on. There was a genuine fear that the sages had that the contradictions within the book would cause problems. We'll see that they had a much bigger problem than contradictions coming up. Yet, why do they not hide it? Okay, so given that there are many contradictions, okay, so why is it still here? Because its beginning is religious teaching and its end is religious teaching. Now, that's very nice. But if I just told you, the sages wanted to banish the book, but they didn't because the beginning is religious and the end is religious. And therefore... And therefore, fill in that sentence. If I were saying, oh my goodness, is this book Bible-worthy? Well, the beginning is religious and the end is religious and therefore it must be that the middle middle is religious very good Uh, that doesn't deal with you guys are so on the proverbial ball that's great now that doesn't address contradictions in other words they're talking about two different things here 
the way that they would say, oh my goodness, the sages thought there were contradictions, and therefore they resolved them. Right? That's what they would do. And in fact, two lines later in the Talmudic passage, they discuss how they resolved contradictions. So the sages only mention problem A, the contradictions, but there's a much bigger and badder problem, and that's problem B, which is there was genuine concern that the middle isn't religious. And the way they salvaged that one was they said, well, if the beginning is, is fine and the end is fine, the middle must be fine also. Truth of the matter is, if you go to a wedding and you know, poke around in the kitchen and find the mashkiach, and you say, what's the story of the kashrut at the wedding? And they say, well, the smorgasbord is kosher and the desserts are kosher. Right. <laughs> Would you eat the main? <laughs> it seems very strange. That's, what it, that's really what it's dealing with, right? It really sounds like, okay, well, we can trust that the beginning and end are okay. It must be that the beginning and the middle is okay also. It's strange. We have to figure out what exactly is terrifying our sages so much. And to do that, you can't figure it out from this Talmudic passage. It doesn't tell you what's bothering them so much. So here's something that we've discussed in the abstract a few times over the first 32 sessions in this series. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, you, really, you really just march it along. When Chazal, when the sages of the Talmud read biblical verses, they often do something that we call atomizing it. They break it up into its components and ignore the context. That's a typical midrashic move. They're not going to ignore the context when they actually read the book, but when they make up midrashim, they break up they break up verses midway, and then they deal with it like that. So, for example, in source number two, which is part of Kohelet, the verse goes, Oh, youth, enjoy yourself while you are young. Party while you're young, right? Let your heart lead you to enjoyment in the days of your youth. Follow the desires of your heart and the glances of your eyes. But know well that God will call you to account for all such things. Okay, if you read the whole verse, what is it saying? Don't think you've got to don't get away with anything. Right, and it's the whole sentence, though. You're, that's the second half. But what's the, if you read the whole sentence as a unit... Yeah. What is it saying? Enjoy life while you can, but do it responsibly. You're responsible for Yeah, do it responsibly. Exactly right. There's nothing religiously scary about this verse. In fact, I would say that the whole Torah is encapsulated there. God wants us to partake of this world and enjoy this world, but do it through a life of holiness. That would have been fine. I see no religious alarms going on. That's fine the way that you and I read the verses when we read them in context. The sages, however, if you imagine reading it out of context, so what would it be? Oh, youth, enjoy yourself while you are young. Let your heart lead you to enjoyment in the days of your youth. Follow the desires of your heart and the glances of your eyes. Stop. Well, if you stop there, then it's party while you're young. Okay, so any pashtan, anybody who's concerned about learning verses in context would say, okay, well, just don't stop there and nothing is wrong. But the sages actually read verses like that. And they were afraid that their audience, that they're not going to become a party while you're young people as a consequence, but they fear that people living in their times will. And that's what they say explicitly in source number three. Rabbi Binyamin, son of Levi, stated, the sages wanted to store away the book of Kohelet, meaning to banish it from the Bible, for they found in it ideas that leaned toward heresy. They argued was it right that Shlomo should have said the following, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth? Notice how they stop mid-verse. So I had to explain the background so you could see what they're doing. Like, oh my goodness, look what he's saying. Moshe said, Do not go about after your own heart and, and your own eyes. We just said it in the Shema five minutes ago, right? It's the third paragraph of the Shema. Don't stray after what your eyes and heart tell you. But Shlomo said, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. What then? Is all restraint to be removed? Is there neither justice nor judge? The sages are very antsy about reading a half of a verse. When, however, he said, but know thou that for all these things God will bring you into judgment, they admitted that Shlomo has spoken well. Oh, once you read it in context, there's no problem at all. All right, so... You have to understand, this is really how sages of the Talmud read verses. They really break them up, and then, of course, they know what the second half is. They they weren't startled by the second thing. But what are they saying on an educational level? It is possible to read Kohelet and read parts of it and read it out of context. If you don't read the whole book with its context, you can really get puzzled as to what the messages are. 
the only way to possibly responsibly understand Kohelet is what the sages are saying with their atom, atomistic reading of the verse. The whole book can be read like that. People can pluck verses out and put them on a pillow or on one of these you know, nice magnets for the fridge, and you might not choose the most inspirational verse, like, it would have been better not to have been born, which appears a couple of times in, in Kohelet. So you can just put that on your fridge and say, oh, you know, Kohelet 4, 3, or whatever it is, and, and that would be very distressing. That's what they're afraid of. They're afraid that people will take verses out of context. Okay, yeah? I have a question, though. Uh, when you came to the conclusion on uh, Source 2 was saying, I don't see how you can draw the conclusion that it's basically telling you to live life responsibly. Where do you read that into it? Saying that if you don't, then God will go get you. Well, yeah, I mean, that is an obvious That's all. But, so, but that's... how does it... But you inferred from that that it's telling you, or someone inferred from that, that uh, it was saying, well, you know, you better uh, do it responsibly if you don't want to be judged later. But where is that, how can you draw that conclusion from what we're seeing? How can you you not? Right, I mean, I think that's basically how the verse reads it, as the full full verse. If you want to read it elsewhere, that's fine. Okay, that's fine. Okay. But be discerning. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that I think that's what the verse says. If you want to disagree with the reading, that's fine. I'm more interested in the educational message. The educational message of the sages is that it is possible, and boy, oh boy, is it possible to read Kohelet and or at least parts of Kohelet completely out of their natural context, and that could lead to fuzzy conclusions that are not necessarily what the Torah wants to get. What is true, and this makes the sages nervous on top of the two things that I mentioned, internal contradictions and what we might call external contradictions, meaning contradictions between Kohelet and any other book of the Bible, is that Kohelet really is different. Now, I've, I've brought this point up time and again. Let's see, let's see how well I've, I've taught this point. According to the sages of the Talmud, what am I holding in my hand? Tanakh. I'm holding a Tanakh, or another way to say it. According to the sages of the Talmud, what I'm holding in my hand is a book. Specifically the Tanakh, correct. According to all later commentators, what am I holding in my hand? I'm holding a library. There's 24 books in here. It happens to be in one convenient binding, which is really great. But but it's 24 books in there, right? It's a library. There's a world of difference whether you read the book, whether you read Tanakh like the sages do as a book, which means that all of it needs to be in sync, or if you read it as a library where you understand each book has its own voice, its own premises, its own messages. The sages had a big problem with Kohelet because Kohelet doesn't really jive with the other 23 books. It speaks a very different voice. And we're going to talk tonight about what that voice is and why it has to be different. So for later commentators, that's not such a difficult problem. Okay, Kohelet speaks with a different voice. Let's understand it for what it's trying to say. And so the sages decided to include it in the Bible. Once it's there, which is a good thing as far as I am concerned, now commentators have a problem because suddenly it's sacred literature and this represents our religion. And even later commentators were bothered by different verses. I'll give you a couple of my personal favorites and explain what the strategies are. Meaning strategy A of the sages was, let's try to banish the book. Okay, that didn't happen, thank God. And so it's here. Once it's here, it is officially part of the religion. And now let's say there are verses that rub commentators the wrong way. One thing that Kohelet does, this is my way of setting up the whole book while just doing this methodology. I like being able to do that. It's a good trick to save time when you're not doing the whole book. Kohelet is bothered by the notion that wisdom is not infinite, unless you happen to be God. Human wisdom is limited by definition, and wise people will die, just like really foolish people will die. That bothers him too. It gets him very upset, but we all understand those things are absolutely true. Wisdom, Human wisdom by definition is limited, and wise people will die just like not wise people. That's just the way of the world. Well, Kohelet is very agitated by that. And so he says at the end of chapter 1, source 4, For as wisdom grows, vexation grows. To increase learning is to increase heartache. He's so frustrated that wisdom doesn't bring the bliss that he was hoping for, but it rather it brings a lot of aggravation. You know too much, and now all of a sudden you're confused, or things get more complicated, or whatever, however you want to say it. Right? So one of our commentators is so bothered by what I just told you, even though it's very plain that that's the meaning of the verse and the section, his name is Ovadia Sforno. Rabbi Ovadia Sforno lived in 16th century Italy. 
He couldn't believe that the wisest of all men would come along and say that wisdom gives you any heartache at all. He just couldn't believe it. How could it be that wisdom, which is a supreme value in our tradition, how could it be that the wisest of all men would say it drives him crazy? So he answers, he's not talking about good wisdom. He's talking about the wisdom of heretics. Now, now, heretics, people who don't believe. In other words, people who are trying to undermine the religion. Well, they can be intelligent, even if they're making a terrible mistake. And so that's the wisdom that Kohelet is trashing. Now, the good news is that makes Sforno feel a whole lot better. In other words, you can't believe that Kohelet is taking pot shots at wisdom itself, which is a supreme value. The bad news is that it just can't be that that's what the verse is saying. Right? This is what we call radical reinterpretation. It's not what do we do dime a dozen. Our commentators do this on every verse on every page. Right? Sometimes they disagree with what the meaning is. That happens all the time. That's normal. Radical reinterpretation is where you pretty much know what the verse is saying. But you simply cannot believe that it's really saying that. And so you just come up with a rather far-fetched alternative. That happens a ton in Kohelet where various commentators say, look, I see what the words are saying also. I know I can read Hebrew. These commentators are quite expert at Hebrew. They read it, they see it, they're like, I, but I just, I just can't believe it. So this is a good example, and there are many, of various commentators looking at the verses which are lamenting the fact that there is limitation both to wisdom and to wise people, which there is, but and they're so bothered that Kohelet would say that they simply reinterpret. So that's a strategy that you will find over and over and over again, and one that I hope, to the best of my ability, never to employ. I don't think it's a good move, because after all, that means that you're saying that you have power over the text. You don't like what the text says, you're going to change it. And it's a danger in doing that, regardless of what your perspective is. So the question always comes up, yeah. Oh, it, it, it depends how one defines wisdom. Uh, learning and knowledge, even understanding, is different from wisdom. If you have a truth that you can't have, that's different from wisdom. I think there's an oxymoron here. To have wisdom is to have is to use that learning, that knowledge, in a way that's compatible with the good life in the world. Okay. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to sound. I don't want to sound like I'm making a pun, but that was very wise of you. <laughs> and, and and I know what I mean by that. You're absolutely right. Biblical wisdom actually is along the aligned with what you just said. Biblical wisdom isn't just having a high IQ. Yeah. It's making prudent decisions in a broader life way, but particularly always making the right religious decisions also. Now, it has nothing to do with IQ. You can be, you know, the wise men might have great IQs, well, but it's not. But it's not about. IQ, that's all. So, it's important, it's important, but it's certainly not the ends, I agree. So that all being said, so that's strategy one that many commentators use when they are uncomfortable by verses. They will radically reinterpret them into something that almost visibly cannot possibly mean that. Okay, a second strategy, which poor Ibn Ezra, he's always stuck having to use this one, because Ibn Ezra hates radical reinterpretation. It's not that he never does it, but boy, he tries to avoid it. He, it gridges him to radically reinterpret verses. So he's stuck, because there are a lot of verses that bother him too. For example, source 5, drives him crazy. Go, eat your bread in gladness, and drink your wine in joy, for your action was long ago approved by God. Let your clothes always be freshly washed, and your head never lack ointment. Enjoy happiness with a woman you love all the fleeting days of your life that you have been granted to you under the sun, all your fleeting days. For that alone is what you can get out of life and and out of the means you acquire under the sun. In other words, enjoy life while you can. Make the most of life. I think that's fine. I think that's a good message. Even Ezra doesn't like it. In fact, he so doesn't like it that he wishes he could radically reinterpret it, but then he remembers that he's even Ezra, so he can't do that. So... So what he does instead is what we may have seen a couple of times along the way already, but we'll see it again right here. Source 6, even Ezra just says very bluntly, this is the folly that people say in their hearts, meaning Kohelet isn't speaking for himself with inspired wisdom. He's quoting losers. Right? That's what's happening over here. Even Ezra doesn't mind imposing a fictional speaker and saying that Kohelet is quoting somebody else, in this case a fool. Now, of course, 
That means what, what's Ibn Ezra saying? He's saying, here are verses in Kohelet, which so far as I can see, and as far as everybody else can see, Kohelet is saying them, but Ibn Ezra does not like them. So he can't reinterpret them because he just doesn't allow himself to do that. So his solution or strategy, whatever you want to call it, is to say, Kohelet is quoting other people. Now, the advantage he gains is he doesn't have to change the words. The disadvantage that he stuck with is he's making these speakers up. Right? To this very day, some people continue to do this trick to try to avoid difficult consequences of the book. And to this day, every single time a new book or article comes out and does that, I lament the fact that, okay, but they're making speakers up. In other words, it's convenient, but once again, it puts the power in the hands of the interpreter. Because the interpreter could just say, any verse that I like, okay, Kohelet said that one. And any verse that I don't like, okay, he's quoting somebody else. I don't think there should ever be power to the interpreter. The power should be to the text. Right? And we're supposed to try to understand what is the divine text trying to say to us. And so as soon as you give yourself that power, again, to some degree, we all do, because you can't be objective. But we have to at least try to avoid it. That's what good learning is supposed to be. Good learning is supposed to be deferentialness, however you say that word, being deferential toward the text itself. Now, so those are two strategies that I've told you so far. Radical reinterpretation and just imposing speakers whenever convenient to the, to the interpreter. Now, when it comes to contradictions, there are indeed many. And Ibn Ezra, again, swings into action, and is, he's very frustrated by them, as was the Talmud. In Source 7, he says, One sees in Solomon's words in this book difficult matters. In many places, he says one thing, and then it's opposite. For this reason, our sages said that the sages wanted to hide Kohelet, because its words contradict themselves, which indeed they do. It is known that the greatest lightweight among the wise would not compose a book and contradict himself in that book. It's like, how could it be that Kohelet is contradicting himself? The little wise people are no better than that. Certainly the biggest of all wise people, he should know that you don't contradict himself. And so he goes on to enumerate a menu of strategies that he uses throughout the book to reconcile contradictions. And that strategy continues to this very day. Many people feel that we have to try to fix Kohelet. There are so many contradictions and we need to fix every single one. And let's just... Even as I explains, a game plan. Here's my battle strategy for the book, and that's exactly what he does throughout his commentary. And many later commentators followed suit as well. Now, it was only in the late 18th century, early 19th century, that academic scholarship, unfortunately, they beat us Orthodox Jews by a century, even more than that, in asking a better question. And I'm sorry that it took us so long to catch on, but by now we've caught on, thank God. So we're, we're, we're in the game, and we're, we're, we're back where we belong. It was, it was 18th century German Protestant scholars. I give them credit for this. It was really based on Spinoza. So at least it was a Jew, albeit not necessarily the, you know, the yeshiva day school, you know, guy poster boy. But all the same, he was the one who raised the right question. And then the German Protestant critics are the ones who picked it up. They picked up the right question and then just gave often enough poor answers to the question. The question that they started to ask, which rabbis, priests, and Karaites alike weren't asking. For thousands of years, we all noticed these contradictions. There's no surprise here that there are contradictions. And just about 100% of the time, our strategy always had been to solve them one by one, or to come up with a menu of strategies and then to solve all of them, which is what Ibn Ezra is suggesting we do here. We've been doing this for thousands of years. We're really good at solving contradictions. It was the 18th century Protestant scholars that asked a different question. And it's really, honestly, a much better question to ask. Okay, let's grant that we could try to fix every single contradiction. You have to still ask, why are they all here in the first place? That was a very good question. I give them a ton of credit for asking it. Right? You can't help but notice that, okay, Kohelet has left us dozens of contradictions that we now have needed to fix for the last you know, thousands of years. Well, why did he do that? Why couldn't he just not make the contradictions in the first place? Right? And the same thing is true with the Torah and the rest of Tanakh as well. So they came up with their strategies. But Rav Soloveitchik, who was already on board, he was one of the pioneers, actually, of the whole system of it, we don't have to fix everything. We're making a big mistake. The reason why we think we have to fix everything is because the Greeks influenced us too much. The Greeks were into the idea that you can't have two contradictory statements by the same person, at least not by an intelligent person. So Rav Soloveitchik says that that is simply not the Jewish way in source number eight. He says, Judaism has never accepted the two-value Aristotelian logic, which, 
And his principle of contradiction and the excluded middle states that if A contradicts B, then only one of them is right and the other is wrong. The thing is either B or A to the exclusion of either being both together or being neither A nor, nor B. Judaism has ignored this principle and has quite often acted as if both A and B are right in spite of their mutual exclusiveness. Even in the halachic realm, Judaism believes that there is a possibility for a contradiction in the objects without negating either of them. Jewish philosophy and the metaphysic of man can, be only, can only be understood if the dialectical principle is adopted as the point of departure, meaning Judaism builds contradictions into the system. And that's why they're there. This is very helpful. I have to tell you, and, and the Orthodox Bible establishment, starting with Rabbi Mordechai Breuer, he was really the pioneer of all of this. The two leading lights in the previous generation were him and, of course, Professor Nechama Leibowitz. And, and they had totally different approaches. Nechama Leibowitz is all about topical analysis of rabbinic commentary, and she broke so much ground, it's, just, it's astounding what she achieved. And Rabbi Mordechai Breuer's view was, it was a, he didn't disagree with what she was doing, he just had his own thing, which was, Let's go about presenting a systematic theory of contradictions. That was his big thing. And he believed that you can sustain a divine voice having multiple facets, even if these facets seem to be contradictory. And so Rav Soloveitchik is making the same point over here. Okay. So let's summarize what we have going for us right now. For a long, long, long time, rabbinic... Sages, the greatest of them all, were terrified of this book, either because there are contradictions within, or because it seems to present values that might contradict with elsewhere in the Torah, or because individual verses sound really wrenching to at least some of the commentators. And we saw the strategies. Radical reinterpretation, imposing a different voice, mechanically fixing all the contradictions. Okay, so what we're going to do is ignore all of those strategies. I respect them very deeply and totally understand where they're coming from. But I think if you want to hear Kohelet's voice, you, ha- you must ignore those strategies. And you have to try to hear Kohelet's unique voice. And you should understand it's going to be rather standout-ish within Tanakh, but there is a reason for that, and that's what we're now going to do. I like statistics, as I'm sure you've heard this before. One expression which we've already encountered just in the few verses that we've seen is the expression, under the sun, Takara Shemesh. This expression appears 29 times in Kohelet. And then there are an additional three Tacharashamayim, under the heavens. So assuming that they mean roughly the same thing, which Rashi and Rashbam do, that's 32 times where Kohelet feels the need to say under the sun or under the heavens. In the whole rest of Tanakh, meaning the other 23 other books, those two expressions appear zero times. That's meaningful. You know, that's meaningful. Kohelet is, right off the bat, telling you something. Hello, I'm not speaking through prophecy. There's no revelation in my book. I'm speaking from a this-worldly perspective only. There's nothing transcendent in Kohelet. Kohelet is saying, I'm speaking about reality under the sun. I'm speaking about the human reality that you and I see with our own eyes. Okay, So automatically... If Kohelet is speaking under the sun and Yeshayahu is getting visions of the heavenly host, they can't speak the same language. If you're seeing the heavenly host and conveying a divine perspective, you're bringing elements into your discourse that you and I could not see, even if we were standing there, because we're not prophets. Whenever prophets speak, it's different from the way you and I would see the world. But not when Kohelet speaks. Kohelet is speaking as a wise person who simply has his eyes open. Okay, the... Perspective of Kohelet is so starkly human that there was one sage, his opinion was not accepted, but you should know. Source number nine over here. Rabbi Shimon ben Menasia said, the song of songs defiles the hands because it was composed with divine inspiration. Kohelet does not defile the hands because it is only Solomon's wisdom. There is a view of one of the great sages, Shimon ben Menasia, from the time of the Tanaim, meaning prior to the second century CE who thought that this book is not inspired. And that's because he's reflecting the right reality, which is there is nothing about revelation here. There is nothing that you and I can't see. So Rabbi Shimon ben Menasya says, so what's inspired about it? If I can see what he can see, all right, I'm not, I don't have divine inspiration. I'm a sage. I'm, a, I'm Rabbi Shimon ben Menasya, but that's it. You and I see the same reality, and therefore this book cannot be inspired. The rest of tradition ignored him, and they said, it is inspired. It's just different, and that's what we have to keep on marching through. 
The expression Adam, meaning humanity, appears 49 times in this book. He's very interested in the human reality. One of those 49 actually it means men, as in like male people. All the other ones it means men the way that it used to be said until whenever it became politically incorrect to say that, men referring to humanity. But all the rest of the time he's talking about human reality. Here are words that don't have much to do with our book. Torah, the Israel's national history. It's about human wisdom, what God-fearing people should do. Just like the book of Job, just like the book of, of uh, Proverbs, this book is about religious people and how they interact with God. It's not specifically about Jews. It's not specifically about the fate of the people of Israel. Okay. Here's another statistic that's rather telling. God's name in Kohelet always is Elohim. It's never the real name of God, which is Yudke Vavke, Tetragrammaton. Right? That the four-letter word Yud then Hey then Vav then Hey, which appears very frequently in Tanakh. And Elohim is a much more generic name. In fact, Elohim isn't really a name of God, even though we call it a name of God, but it's not. Elohim is a noun. It means God. And you can even refer to other gods with the word Elohim Acherim, right? It means other deities. We still use the word Elohim, right? It just means it's a, it's a noun. Yudke Vavke, God's proper name, is really God's personal name and reflects a personal relationship. When we pray, we're praying to Yudke Vavke. We're not praying to Elohim. You can't pray to Elohim. Elohim created the world and is quite transcendent. You pray to Yudke Vavke. In fact, Yudke Vavke is here with us right now. Right? That's the God, that's the personal God that's very much with us. Now, of course, they're both the same deity. Right? We all understand that Yudke Vavke and Elohim are the same God. But they're two very different manifestations of God's presence. Kohelet only uses Elohim because his God is very far away. From a purely human perspective, Elohim is transcendent. God created the world, God runs the world, and I don't understand what God is up to. He talks about God in this book. He never talks to God in this book. There's no prayer. He'll talk about prayer. That he can do. But he's talking to us about God and about human reality. So Kohelet, again, is speaking from a very different voice from most books of Tanakh, where Yudke Vavke is the the dominant name. That name appears about 7,500 times in all of Tanakh, vastly more than Elohim, which is about 2,500, still a lot, but considerably less than Yudke Vavke. So, Kohelet is speaking to all humanity. He's speaking with this universalistic, distant God voice rather than the imminent God who's right there in the room with you. Kohelet never talks about Israel. And here's the big difference. There's somebody named Michael V. Fox, not to be confused with Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox is that Back to the Future guy and Family Ties guy who I remember very fondly back in the day. Michael V. Fox is an important Bible scholar who likes books like this one and has written some excellent pieces on Proverbs and Kohelet, Esther also for that matter, really some excellent scholarship. So Michael V. Fox says very, very, very well the key difference between the book of Proverbs, which we did not that long ago, and Kohelet. Proverbs, if you ask the author of Proverbs, how do you know what you know? Proverbs will tell you, well, my teachers told me. I have received wisdom from the sages of the previous generation. And how do they know? They have received wisdom from the previous generation to them. And so on and so forth all the way back. We have received wisdom. That's the book of Proverbs. It's received Israelite wisdom. And if you ask Kohelet, how do you know what you know? He would say, well, I learned from the sages, and they learned from their sages, and they learned from their sages, same thing. And I also have my eyes open, and I see reality the way that I see it. And I'm not going to let my received wisdom color what I see with my own eyes. Proverbs tells you that's what you're supposed to do. If you see any clashes between received wisdom and what you see, you're wrong. Defer to tradition and and received wisdom. Kohelet says no way. Kohelet says when there is a clash between received wisdom and what you see with your own eyes, you must hold on to both. Don't ditch the wisdom ever. We never ditch wisdom. But don't ditch what you see with your own eyes. What you see with your own eyes is valid. And that's what makes him so unhappy. Because now he's tormented. He doesn't know what to do. That's what he calls Hevel. It's absurd. 
time and again, he reflects on the fact that, well, they taught me this in school, and therefore it's truth. But I see with my own eyes a different reality, and that's also truth. And now I'm not sure what to do with myself. I'm puzzled. I'm vexed. That's the idea of having too much wisdom and feeling all that vexation. Right? Isn't there a solution for that when you just like resort to apologetics or simply hide behind some of the sages um, of the Talmud? No, what you're saying is very wise. So Kohelet won't do that. Right? He doesn't use apologetics. He just very bluntly says, here's the reality. Here's what I see. And what he sees is what you and I see also. And I'm not shutting those eyes at all. Nor am I even going to reinterpret what I see in light of what I was taught. But I'm also never going to walk away from what I was taught. I'm just going to be tormented. Sorry. But that's also assuming that we are all seeing the world through the same set of um, lenses, which is not accurate. Of course you're right. But if you see the realities that he describes, you would quickly agree with 100% of them. You're right. You and I don't see the world the same way. No two people see the world the same way. You're, of course, correct. But the realities that he describes we would all agree with. Right? Well, you'll see. You'll see. Just to give you a good example of how Kohelet sees the world. In source number 10, he says, Keep your mouth from being rash, and let not your throat be quick to bring forth speech before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. That is why your words should be few. Don't bother protesting God, because what do you know? God is way up there, and you're way down here. So don't protest. So if Kohelet were to be the fourth friend of Job, and he walked into the room, and he put his arm around Job, well, he wouldn't do that. Job is covered with boils, sorry. But, yeah, I forgot that part. Anyway, he's not putting his arm around anybody. But okay, he sits in the room, and he's not going to be as smug as the other three friends who are just a disaster. What Kohelet would say is, Job, you have every right to be frustrated by this, and believe me, in my own book, I also think the world is unfair. It drives me up a wall. I lose sleep over this. Literally, he says this. But stop yelling at God. What are you going to gain from that? God is way up there and you're way down here. You don't know how God works. Neither do I. Unlike the friends who claim that they do know how God works, that's their problem. Right? Kohala says, look, I don't know how God works either. You're, you're absolutely right to be concerned about this. But be frustrated. Don't start yelling at God. That's Kohala's perspective on the world. The world is unfair, but what are you going to do yelling at God? You're going to, you, you lose by doing that. Whereas Job, of course, he yells away. That's his, whole, that's his whole premise. Another example, just so you can see how different Kohala is from other books, and we'll, I'll even, let's, we'll think about the contrast. So here we go. Nice, nice depressing thought incoming. Source 11. I further observed all the oppression that goes on under the sun. The tears of the oppressed with none to comfort them and the power of their oppressors with none to comfort them. So this is a reality that every generation somewhere in the world, and oftentimes many places in the world, has it. Okay, so now, then I accounted those who died long since more fortunate than those who are still living. It's better to be dead than to have to witness this, he says. And then, and happier than either are those who have not yet come into being and have never witnessed the miseries that go on under the sun. What a horrible world we live in. Now remember, it doesn't matter when he lived or who he is. Any person in any generation could say, woe unto the poor righteous or just tormented people, because there's always going to be some oppression somewhere in the world. And wherever that is, it's horrible. It's wrenching. And of course, in our age, we get access to it instantly online. We know about all the oppression in the world much more frequently than what he would have been aware of. But even in his world, he was aware there's always going to be some oppression somewhere. All right. So that's Kohala's perspective. Like, it's better to be dead now than to have to put up with what we see. And it would have been better never to have been born in the first place. That is really sobering and really depressing. All right. If the prophet Isaiah looked at the same oppression, what would he say? Let's review the whole, the whole two years. Let's do it. Huh? He would protest. He would never just lament it. Kohala is lamenting a reality. He says, here's a reality that's part of the human experience, and it stinks. Right? That's all he's saying. He's speaking from a purely human perspective, because it's terrible, and we often are powerless to change it. Yeshayahu says, you know what? I'm never, I'm, until I go to my grave, I'm going to spend every waking moment I can trying to fix this world. 
Prophecy never just laments the reality. It can't. Prophecy is very restless like that, right? As we've seen time and again through the prophets. The prophets are interested in bringing Mashiach. And that doesn't just happen magically. That happens when people get better, when the suppression stops. So if they see oppression, they go right on after the oppressors. right? They tell them, hey, you're ruining our world and bad things are happening because of you. Stop it. Right? That's what prophets do. Sorry, Megan. Uh, yeah, I was thinking that the, uh, when you have the concomitant opposite uh, and have to reconcile uh, points of view and keep them both in mind, uh, it's a greater degree of faith uh, to, to, to be able to uh, live with both sort of realities and the, you know, God's wisdom and that doesn't match up. It's a greater degree. I thoroughly agree with you. It, it is a greater degree. That's why I like Kohelet and I'm glad they didn't get rid of it. It's a risky business religiously, but it's far more honest. In other words, here's Kohelet trying to say, look, given the realities of the world, given that there's oppression, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that it's not here. I'm not going to say it's magically God's going to show up tomorrow and get rid of it. It's not. That's not how oppression goes away. Mashiach will be the end of oppression. But until then, in the human reality, there's no Mashiach. In the human reality, history keeps on repeating itself. We keep on making the same mistakes. Kohelet is written from a strictly human perspective. There's nothing transcendent about it at all, at all, which is why he views the world as coming in cycles. Sun goes up, sun goes down, the ocean goes in cycles, the wind goes in cycles, oppression goes in cycles. This is all part of the human experience. So the prophets will all say, if there's oppression, protest it. If Abraham sees oppression, what's he going to do? Hmm? He might turn to God and start yelling at God and saying, what's going on here, God? The world is unfair. Right? That's another strategy that he and several psalmists use. So several psalmists are very unsatisfied with the oppression in the world. So they turn to God and say, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Right? So prophets try to change the people. They don't try to change God on average. But... The prayers of the biblical community, the psalmists, Avraham, other, Moshe Rabbeinu, they turn to God and, and protest. They say, what's going on here? We can't have a world like this. What are you going to do about it, God? All right, so that's another angle that you find as a predominant voice within Tanakh, the protest tradition, the fixing up society tradition. Kohelet is neither of the above. He doesn't pray. He can't pray. It's only Elohim, Right? And he can't fix society because he sees society as this is the way of the world. There's always going to be oppression. And that's very depressing. If you speak from a purely human perspective, he's telling the truth. It's just that there's nothing transcendent about it. He's also frustrated by death. It drives him up a wall that wise people die like fools die. It drives him even more up a wall that we die and animals die. Right? And he spends the first three chapters just going on and on about how frustrated he is by all of this. Right? But he, of course, is right. And there's nothing in the world he or anybody else can do to change that reality. He's speaking simply the human reality. Wise, and, wise people and fools die. Fools, people and animals die. That's, that's how God made life. Okay, So he, since there is no fix, what he's trying to say is, okay, but how do we live life then? What's the ultimate meaning in life? Yeah. Who is Kohelet? Is that supposed to be Solomon, or is it? It's a persona from Solomon, but it's but it's universal wisdom. In other words, he's not speaking as I, King Solomon, who yeah. am a biographical figure, historical figure. You and I could say these words. Okay. In other words, it's speaking from. That's why the word Solomon has to be out of the book. We need to have a universal voice that speaks to all people of all times, which it does. I mean, this is exactly the human reality. So another thing that, of course, bothers Kohelet is the problem that the world is unfair. We spent a lot of time talking about that in the book of Job, so I'm not going to rehash the fact that, from a human perspective, the world certainly is unfair. Well, it drives him crazy, too. Source 12. Here is a frustration that occurs in the world. Sometimes an upright man is requited according to the conduct of the scoundrel. Sometimes the scoundrel is requited according to the conduct of the upright. I say that all, I say all that is frustration. All that is frustration. I therefore praise enjoyment. For the only good a man can have under the sun is to eat and drink and enjoy himself. That much can accompany him in exchange for his wealth through the days of life that God has granted him under the sun. So all he's saying, and, he's, and he says this time and again, is, okay, granting the reality, everybody's going to die. The world is unfair. 
The best thing you can do is make the most of your life and understand that there is no guarantee for anything. You can never turn to God and present God with a bill. I've been very righteous this past month. You owe me A, B, or C. So, because the world is unfair. That's the frustrating side of it. The plus, and this is what comes out time and again in Kohelet, is that since the world is unfair, we have to say thank God for every blessing that we have. We can never say it's because we deserve it. That's the, one of the most important themes of the whole book of Kohelet. Every single chapter practically makes this point. Since we, since we can never say we're entitled to any divine blessings because the world is unfair, so yes, that's frustrating that the world is unfair and he doesn't let that go, but it means that every single thing that we have and every moment that we have is a blessing. It's a gift. And we should be grateful for it and live that blessing out to the utmost while we can. Right? That's the running theme of Kohelet. Yeah, Beverly? Wise people are where it's at. Wisdom is a supreme value in Tanakh, and particularly in wisdom books like Proverbs and Kohelet. Wisdom, again, going back to what Shirley said before, it's not just high IQ. It has nothing to do with, I mean, IQ can be a factor in that, but it has nothing to do with brilliant people. It has to do with, are you making religiously prudent decisions and living the good life? So that is a supreme value of the Torah. The Torah wants us all to do that all of the time. So there's no gap between being wise and being righteous in biblical tradition. If the wiser you are, the more righteous you will be. So that's that's a good value. And, and, and Kohelet never relinquishes the value. He's only saying that wisdom is not a cure-all for this perfect eternal life. I'm going to die the same way that the fool down the block is going to die. I can suffer as much as the fool down the block, and I might suffer a lot more then the fool down the block. And that drives me up a wall, but that's the way it is. Frustration, Havel. But I can appreciate everything that I get from God knowing that it has nothing, that I'm not entitled to it. What Kohelet is trying to do is humble everybody. Right? He's simply speaking the reality. He's saying the reality can be very painful and frustrating, but it's the reality. It's nothing that any of us can change or even understand. But that means that we can fully benefit from God's world, live life to its fullest, and understand that this is all a blessing, yeah, Dr. Glazer. The point is, you don't understand God's way. Right. I and mean, that's where it really comes down to. Correct. And if you have wisdom purportedly, then you can say, okay, we make a statement, we don't understand God, and we carry on like that. But that, to me, seems to be more than it's, it's of critical importance. So again, and it's different from other biblical wisdom, which says that if you have enough wisdom, you can understand how the world works. Kohelet is saying that's just not true. Kohelet rejects all the standard answers. Again, it's hard to fathom, but we say it, we say it all the time. We say it on every Shabbat, right? When we see wicked people sprouting up like grass, that's a good thing. We know, we wise people know, that God is going to wipe them out. And then Kohelet says, yeah, but God doesn't always wipe them out. <laughs> right? Once you, once, once you look at the reality as opposed to the principle, the received wisdom says God always is going to strike them down. But God doesn't always strike them down. So that's frustrating. But at least that opens the door to this unbelievable humility. It could, by the way, also, alternatively, could lead to a threat to faith. Right? You understand that if your faith is in the received wisdom and reality contradicts it, you could see somebody saying, oh, Reality isn't like what they taught me, therefore what they taught me is wrong. Right? That's what people can do, and I'm sure there have been people over the millennia who have done that. Right? Kohelet's response is, I'm going to teach you how to have faith with your eyes open. Even though you're not going to understand the world, you're going to be frustrated all the time. Kohelet is trying to teach what Megan was saying before, a much higher level of faith. How to not color your reality but rather to see the reality that's true. What Kohelet is describing, again, getting back to the point from before, he's not describing obscure things that you and I can disagree with. He's describing what the human experience is like. Yeah, Joe? See the one who actually interjects the quality of simchot. He's actually seems to enjoy life. He's everybody else saying. He's very pro-joy. Now, his point is, live every moment while you can. Be thankful to God for every one of those moments. Do it live responsibly, going back to the earlier point. In other words, follow the guidelines of how the Torah wants us to enjoy it, and then it's all good. You'll still be frustrated by all these things. Right? That never will go away. Right? 
The world is still unfair. We still don't understand anything about how God operates the world. We're all still going to die. These are realities. Yeah, Miriam? Kohelet will say, I, I don't understand it at all. Accept it. It's a reality. And he'll say, I wish I were never born. Like, it's so awful, rather than trying to explain it. Right? He's never going to try to explain it, because he says this is utterly beyond our comprehension. But I lament the human evil in all of this. That's exactly the point. And there's one who comes up with an answer with that, other than that would worry me regardless of what that answer was going to be. Koala says, forget it. These, are, these answers are beyond. Only God knows we have no clue. And that's very painful and frustrating, but that's the reality. And he's speaking, why does it matter that it's King Solomon? Because he's the wisest of all men. Right? If some lightweight wrote the book, we could say, oh, but if you were a heavyweight, you would understand better. He is the heaviest weight of them all. That's why it has to be King Solomon. Right? Yeah, sorry. Sorry, sorry, Mary Miriam. But the way of his thinking is making like he can, like, the Holocaust can be. That's what he, he, he It can be, it was, so. No, I mean, <laughs> it's a case like that can be, the way that King Solomon is thinking. I'm not following you. Okay. Oh, no, go for it. No, no, the way that, the way that you interpret the way that Kohen presents the case. So cases like Holocaust or other extreme cases can happen even if we don't understand. He will accept it. He will accept it in the sense that it happens and then he'll say that it's terrible. Can we prevent Correct. it? Correct. Alina? Yeah. We, don't, we don't need to understand. We need to just accept and have a faith in what's happening. In Very good. So that's what he's teaching. Exactly your point. He's trying to say that if you, wise people thought that they could understand God's ways. So Kohelet is saying, I'm the wisest of them all. I don't understand a thing. And if I don't, you don't. Having faith is what you're saying. Granting that these are the realities. Here's how we can march with faith in God. Very good. No, you're saying it's beautiful. I, I, I think you're making an excellent point of how Kohelet wants to steer us. Okay, good. Sherry, last thing. Yeah. I have a question. I'm not sure. This is how it would fit into this in particular source uh, 12 when he says, and an upright man is required according to the conduct of the scoundrel. Now, there's an expression. I don't know where, but you know, one shouldn't um, look at it wholly as, sorry, just because one sees that, you don't know how that person is going to be treated in Allah above. Correct, but there's no afterlife in this discussion. But that's what I'm getting at. You know, how does it connect there's, with... There's no afterlife in this discussion. The biblical premise is that this world is fair. And that's why it's a problem. That's why unfairness is a problem. Unfair, afterlife became a very important variable to, right. because we couldn't solve the problem with this worldly fairness because so the world is unfair. So Kohala doesn't talk about afterlife because it's not part of the equation. The biblical premise is that this world is fair. All right. Okay. Well, where is it explicitly stated so? Cover to cover. Again, it's a, it's a long, that's a longer conversation. Read the conversations that I just gave you. The article on afterlife the most recent thing, so I talk all about it. So that, that's the place to look for That's a It's a whole different talk. For our purposes here, yeah, sorry, a couple... Um, I grew up learning that Hevel meant worthlessness or nothingness. Vanity. It's translated here as um, frustration. There are different... So the answer is, of course, there are different ways to skin the word, right? Nothingness alone doesn't cover the bases, no matter what. There's more going on than nothingness because it's something that makes them upset. So it could be frustration, vexation, absurd, things along those lines. Plus, Hevel also has something to do with breath. The idea is that it's there and then it's gone. Mm. But there's something fleeting about it. Correct. So it's not it's something to do with worthlessness. It's not, worthless isn't quite the right word. Although, again, breath, because it's ephemeral, also is now gone. So there's an element of it, but it's not the whole story. Okay, so let me, let me wind this one down. So... In the epilogue of the book, if you look at source number 13, a further word, because Kohelet was a sage, he continued to instruct the people. 
He listened to and tested the soundness of many maxims. This verse really sums it all up right there. When you listen to something, izayin, that means that you're receiving wisdom. Chiker, tested, means that he's challenging every bit of the wisdom. And those two words are really the banner, that's the slogan for the book. The book is all about izayin v'chiker, being able to hear received wisdom, and simultaneously to critically analyze and challenge every single one based on what you see with your own eyes, and never to let go of either. Don't let wisdom color what you see, but don't let what you see cause you to compromise wisdom. Wisdom is still a supreme value because wisdom is a supreme value. So that all being said, and we come back to the Midrash that we just read a few weeks ago when we did the Song of Songs, but we'll read it again in this context and then wrap it up. Source 14. He pondered the words of the Torah and investigated the meaning of the words of the Torah. Very back page. So what it means is that he heard, received wisdom, and he also challenged it. But now the Midrash expounds on that a bit. It said, he made handles, oznayim to the Torah. Said Rabbi Nachman, imagine a large palace with many doors, so that whoever entered could not find his way back to the door until one clever person came and took a coil of string and hung it up on the way to the door. So that all went in and out by means of the coil. In other words, imagine a house with many rooms, and everybody gets lost in there until some genius invented an exit sign. Right? That's what he's saying. So the genius invented the exit sign. So too, until Shlomo rose, no one was able to understand properly the words of the Torah, but as soon as Solomon arose, all began to comprehend the Torah. Amazing. Because again, there were some smart people before King Solomon also. Or another example, Rabbi Yosei said, imagine a big basket full of produce without any handle, so that it could not be lifted, until one clever man came and made handles to it. And then it began to be carried by the handle. So till Solomon arose, nobody could properly understand the words of the Torah. But when Solomon arose, all began to comprehend the Torah. This Midrash is pinpointing what we discussed back in the Song of Songs. I'll just reiterate the point. Tanakh is primarily revelation. We're hearing God's voice direct or God's voice filtered through the prophets. We're hearing a perspective that transcends our own reality. And then the proper faith is leaping beyond ourselves and connecting to the world of the divine. Right? That's, in a sentence, what most of Tanakh is all about. And that's good. The hazard of that approach, even though we are indeed a revealed religion, is that what about all of us who are not prophets? How do we fully engage with the world of prophecy? And so this Midrash very colorfully is saying, nobody could. Unless you were a prophet, you really couldn't fully understand the words of the prophets. And therefore you were somewhat disconnected. Along came King Solomon and said, you know what, I have to write books from a human perspective. Because most of the people who read Tanakh are human beings who are not prophets. So he wrote the Song of Songs. We have to love God. That's tough. I know. I'll describe human love, which people can understand. And that will give them a paradigm, a model, to help them love God better. And, oh, prophecy and wisdom tell us all these things. But then most people, they can't help but notice that when they see things with their own eyes, it's different. I have to teach people how to have faith when they're thinking like people and not like prophets. That's what Kohelet does. Kohelet fills a void in Tanakh. It's very different from the other 23 books for this very reason. Because it is written from an absolutely human perspective, and at the same time it venerates the same wisdom that the other 23 books venerate and present, he's trying to teach how one can live a fully religious life while simultaneously never, ever, ever giving up questioning or the reality that we see. And he says, you'll never solve these problems. I couldn't. You won't. I won't. None of us will. But King Solomon, the wisest of all men, also could not do it. So Kohelet is an incredibly essential part of Tanakh. I'm so glad the sages did not banish it, because it reminds us we need a human book to be in Tanakh itself. It needs to be part of the religion. To remind us, okay, this book actually speaks our language. Now we can start to try to relate to the transcendent ones. It gives us that stepping, stepping stone. And simultaneously, we need the prophets... Because if we didn't have the prophets and only had Kohelet, we'd never be able to transcend ourselves. When we saw oppression, we would say, oh, how awful is that? The world is always going to be like that. The prophets will say, the world doesn't have to be like that now, and the world one day won't be like this. Right? But you need prophets to tell you that. You need somebody who can step out of the human box and see the world of the divine to be able to tell us we need to be able to transcend ourselves. So Kohelet gives us a voice that we really, really need to be religious, thoughtful people. 
but at the same time, it should never be the only voice. You need the, you need you need the library, and that's what our whole survey has been about. On that happy note, I want to thank everybody for the fifth of our six phases of this course. It's hard to believe that we are now approaching the last of the phases. I want to wish everybody a wonderful Pesach and all the things that come right before and after that. We resume, I sent an email already, we resume on April 26th with three sessions, one on the book of Daniel, one on Ezra and Nehemiah, one on the book of Chronicles. Then I go to Chicago on the 17th, which is why I can't be here for that one. And then I'll be back, I'll be living in Teaneck already, but I'll be back on the 24th for our final closing sessions. I look forward to all of that. Wonderful Pesach, and I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you as